0: To Knowing Nature, a podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name is Annabeth.
1: And my name is Victor.
0: And welcome to the podcast.
1: This week is going to be the first part of two episodes where we give you a tour of the Mammal Hall here mm-hmm. at the Natural History Museum. We're going to give you two different tours and talk a bit about how we put together the tour.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Victor and I both have sort of different ideas of what maybe different tours need and what maybe different ages might need. So it's going to be really exciting to see. Yeah, our different sort of thought processes behind it so like we said yeah we're going to start I think with the Mammals Gallery and I'm really really
1: stoked for this I think it's going to be quite exciting. Right so let's go to the gallery. Woo-hoo. So here we are, we're standing at the entrance to the Mammal's Mm -hmm. Corridor, and we're in front of the case, What Makes a Mammal? And in this case, a horse, a human, and a dog. And Mm. they've been made so that you can see their skeletons. Very eye-catching, which I do like. Very eye-catching. So on this tour, we're going to be talking about mammals and figuring out what they eat. This is a lovely case to start with because it gives us three very different groups. Mm. So, horses. Annabeth, what does a horse eat?
0: So, I'm going from experience here from having horses, but I know that they are vegetarians or herbivores. So, plants, plant eaters.
1: Excellent. So, they are need her. And you know that because you've fed horses. Yes. Yeah. I've had horses, but now,
0: also, I guess you can from studying teeth as well, but then that gets into whole other
1: side of things. Well, that's what we're going to look at yeah. today. So if we look at the horse's teeth, mm-hmm. you can see what kinds of shapes of teeth can you see?
0: So at the very, very front, we have those kind of sharper, the incisors, really just kind of flat. And then at the back, we've got those big crushing and grinding molars, but no canine teeth shows you that this animal cannot eat meat even if some horses are nasty and
1: bite. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the front teeth and they are, they're kind of, when you look at the edge of them, they're, it's quite flat, quite straight, mm-hmm. isn't it? So that's like your pair of scissors kind of mm-hmm. thing. So yeah. that's where snipping off the plants. And then when you look at the back, you've got very, they look like very rough teeth actually, mm-hmm. don't they? So that's a rough grinding surface because they're eating yeah lots of plants, but yeah. like grasses and things that are really mm-hmm. tough. They need lots to chew. Yeah, the
0: epitome of the grazer here. I think horses are a
1: really good example of that. Yeah, right. So Annabeth, Mm -hmm. teeth are stuck into... The jawbone. the jawbone. Now, look at mm. that horse's jawbone.
0: It is massive.
1: It, it is huge. huge. It's what, this, the width of a hand?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Something like that? Very thick, thick Yeah, bone. now, if we go just next door to this next window, mm-hmm. you can see we've got a human skeleton. Which
0: for some reason, much more creepier to look at than the skeleton of a horse. Mm. I don't know why, but
1: that's maybe my yeah. own personal fears there. Uh, but now, look at that jawbone. That's maybe... Much than a like finger?
0: Less than a finger. Two-finger yes maybe oh, yeah
1: something like that mm-hmm. so not as big a bone so the size of a bone can mm-hmm. give you a sense of how big mm-hmm. the muscles are that attach to that bone so who's got stronger mouth muscles
0: Well, yeah obviously it's assume the horse yeah because of how big that jawbone that is, there, jawbone the bone is. Yeah. and
1: they spend a lot of time mm-hmm. chewing so they need to have you know quite tough jaw muscles yes. to do all that chewing yeah.
0: I really thought about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now we've got. Uh, oh, and people. What? So here we are by the human skeleton. So mm-hmm. what? What do people eat?
0: We are most people. Well, you say human beings generally are omnivores. They have a balanced meat and vegetable
1: diet, unless they've made the yeah. choice. But still, we omnivores. We can eat. Yeah. We can digest. Yeah. Uh, pretty much everything. And if you look at us, we've got those kind of flat front teeth, your Mm -hmm. incisors, and at the back you've got those kind of rough, bumpy looking teeth, the Mm -hmm. molars, but we have uh, not very, you can't see them very very well, well but there is a tooth in between, Mm -hmm. which we call the canines, and actually, when you look at the horse, where the canines would be, there's nothing, Mm -hmm. The just a gap. Now, canines, mm-hmm. that reminds us of another group of animals, doesn't mm-hmm. it? it? reminds us of?
0: The dogs. The dogs. Conveniently,
1: nice, the next animal <laughs> yeah. in this case. So when you look at the dog, they've got the incisors at the front. They've got the bumpy molars at the back, but mm-hmm. in between, very obvious, you've got these mm-hmm. long, curved, cone-shaped canines.
0: And those molars, though at the back, if you compare them to the horse model and the human model that we've previously seen, you can notice—well, I noticed anyway—that the molars are really different shape. They're not nearly as flat and rounded. Yeah, as they're very molars, bumpy. Yeah.
1: So they're adapted therefore actually like shearing, cutting off pieces of meat because. Mm-hmm. Dogs are meat eaters. Mm-hmm. They're they're carnivores. Mm-hmm. So we've got a little overview of different kinds of animal teeth. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a stroll down the mammal gallery and have a look at what other teeth we can find. Yes. Right. So here we are, and we're kind of in the middle of the mammals gallery. Mm-hmm. We're in front of the case. It's got a huge skeleton
0: Absolutely
1: in it. Absolutely massive. Giant case, and this is a skeleton of a diprotodon. Mm -hmm. Now, look at these teeth. What is this going to eat? So, it's got. The
0: skull is is massive for a start, absolutely huge. Um, The whole animal is probably standing about over two meters tall anyway, which is mildly terrifying. But uh, looking at the teeth, if we're focusing on them, I think, yeah, because it's a very, very old skeleton. But yeah, you can definitely make out that it's got the kind of big, big molars at the back and what it looks to be quite really, really long, flat, kind of sharpish incisors at the front, but similar to the horse that we looked at first. It's quite It doesn't have any canines, yeah.
1: So it's got incisors at the front and then the gap mm-hmm. between that and the molars. So mm-hmm. this we're looking at is a huge, huge herbivore. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very big. Now, we can also, because herbivores, we talked about the horse, and mm-hmm. it eats very kind of tough, leaves, mm-hmm. so it needs big jaw to mm-hmm. chew quite a lot, and if you look at this one, look at that mm-hmm. jaw, what What would you say, is it about, about as thick as the horse's one, isn't mm-hmm. it?
0: It's so, not thicker.
1: So I would imagine that this is another one that needs to chew mm-hmm. quite a lot. Now, this is found in Australia, oh, wow. and... Australia, Wait, what do you th- what do you think about weather-wise when I you think of it Australia? I being very,
0: very dry. So if maybe the plants, like I would just hypothesise here that the plants that do grow there maybe have to hold on to water. So maybe would have really tough, tough leaves to try and keep moisture in as much as possible. This is just me guessing. I've never been to Australia. I'm just going to spit more in yeah, here. But when you imagine the weather, <laughs> you imagine it's yeah, like hot, hot sunny, yeah. you go surfing
1: all the time. Yeah. Do, I mean, when you imagine Australia, do you imagine rain ever?
0: I'm sure they get it but no I, no, no, I don't, don't really, really I think, think about of, it. I think of red sandiness
1: Yeah, closest so
0: place to Mars we have on earth <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so yeah hot dry yeah. so a lot of Australian plants do have that quite tough kind of leathery mm-hmm. leaves and that's to reduce water loss yes. mm-hmm. so this animal is going to be eating those leaves So mm-hmm. it again needs very very tough teeth and big jaw muscles mm-hmm. to chew up yes
0: so you mentioned that this is an extinct mammal, though. Do you know roughly when this animal would have been alive? It would have been around
1: 30,000 years ago.
0: 30,000 years ago. So would there have been people, human or early humans around then? In, uh, in
1: Australia. Australia. Yeah, they would
0: have reached it by then. Yeah. Oh, wow, okay.
1: I think so. Right, so we've got this massive mammal, and we know it mm. ate. Let's, let's move further down. Here we are. We're further down the gallery now in front of the cat's. Case and in this one we've got a cheetah, we've got a lion, and we've got a leopard, and we've got a tiger. Mm, the kind of
0: poster children for
1: kind the of big the cats. cats. Yeah.
0: Apart from the cheetah, it's technically not a big cat. Well, I mean still a large cat by medium any means. A so medium cat <laughs> with its large friends.
1: <laughs> but we're gonna have a look particularly at the tiger that's in this case, which so is a taxidermy mm-hmm. tiger. And it's got this, I don't know, it's whenever I look at this tiger, it's got this it's kind of a snarl
0: yeah i think or grimace or something something happy
1: <laughs> conveniently for us the mouth is open Very so we convenient. can see
0: the teeth mm-hmm, huge again terrifyingly large i think the first thing i notice when i look at it there's massive
1: canine teeth terrifying even though these are felines still felines. called canines <laughs> <All>,
0: oh <whole, whole. laughs>
1: and on the oh, so on the tiger do we know what tigers eat what does the tiger, tiger eat?
0: well like if I didn't know at least the case does say cats the meat eaters so there this it, yeah I think most people know cats are carnivores
1: I think so even uh, house cats are, catch yeah. small yeah. animals yeah mm-hmm. so when you look at these teeth it's you can see it's got front mm-hmm. teeth the incisors the big canines and mm-hmm. at the back it's got the molars again yeah. but again very different very shapes very sharp I yeah. think one of
0: the big things I noticed between comparing this to the horse and the herbivores that we've looked at Is never mind the presence of those canine teeth but actually how small and reduced the incisors are so clearly these are teeth not needed for grazing or snipping away plants but rather much more reduced probably i don't know to helping pull meat more than anything else it's the canines you notice first of all they're the
1: the breadwinners
0: in there (laughs) and
1: the those incisors they're a bit they're actually more like cone shaped Mm -hmm. than the horse's teeth were Mm -hmm. they were just very flat and straight but these are almost like little pointy cones so mm-hmm. they're also there for like yeah. gripping into tearing out and bits for, of meat.
0: I would almost guess as well when you think of how cats hunt as well that this they kill with their obviously with their with their teeth with like a huge like, kind of crushing bite to the jugular or if it's a jaguar through the skull so yeah they need these sort of really you can tell that these are teeth for par they're there for yeah they're there for killing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And then at the back of the mouth mm-hmm. look at those molars they're definitely not very flat they
0: look like little mini mountain ranges they like look pointy like, little dolomites
1: yeah <laughs> so again when you're looking at meat eaters that all of these teeth they've gone very pointy mm-hmm. and that's because these guys they don't you don't really need to chew the meat mm-hmm. you need to tear off or mm-hmm, break slice. off Slice Mm -hmm. off into a smaller piece, and Mm -hmm. then you can just eat that smaller piece. Yeah, Yeah. you can digest it much more easily. Mm -hmm. So these are not chewing teeth. The big tooth that you can see, the big mountain-shaped tooth, Mm -hmm. that's the carnassial that these guys have. Yeah, and it is. It this is like a little steak knife. It's there Mm -hmm. to sort of shear off Mm -hmm. pieces of meat. And if you look at cats and how they eat, you'll notice that they kind of do go to the side, and it looks like they kind of gnaw Mm -hmm. on chunks, and that's them using those teeth yeah, to shear off pieces. Is it
0: not that when we chew, our mouth kind of moves in a circular motion to crush and grind? If you think about it, when we chew, our mm. jaw's sort of moving. Is it? I believe cats can't physically move their jaw in that circular motion. It only... So when they're slicing, that's why a lot of them turn their heads to the side to sort of gnash through mm. any of the food that they have. The um, tougher meat. Yeah, and I think it's like all cats are considered what we call true carnivores, right? Yep. Even from your little pet cat all the way up to your yeah, yep. tiger, the biggest one, they're yep. all considered true carnivores, which Mm -hmm. is kind of crazy because even if you think of dogs have carnassial teeth and
1: bears, but yeah. Exactly, so all of them, they're in the group of mammals, the the carnivores, Mm -hmm. the The carnivores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that covers, there's the more dog-like ones and there's the more cat-like ones. Um, that's where you how you split all those carnivores mm. up into basically dogs and cats and all the meat-eating animals fit into one of those kind of two big groups uh including the bears bears uh, i true. love
0: bears i'm a big fan although i can say that i love i do love the big cats but when you're this close and staring at them right in there albeit marble eyes it's a bit daunting yes <laughs> i would not want to meet one of these in the wild <laughs> No, not not up close no with think. those teeth like that no goodness no
1: Right, so next we've covered the kind of big groups. Mm -hmm. Next we're gonna have a look at, actually next door, the bears, we mentioned Mm them. So here we are in front of a big bear, a terrifying grizzly bear, to be exact. Yeah, On so his back legs. Here we are, and it's like got this very ferocious pose. Its paws mm-hmm. are up in the air. Its mouth is open in a big kind mm-hmm. of roar, which conveniently gives us a view of, of his teeth. teeth. Yeah. Now, what do bears eat?
0: So obviously, when you think of maybe the grizzly bears or the brown bears, or you, you think of like the salmon runs, so you know about. Mm-hmm. No, they eat. So you think fish. They'll eat meat, but they are known to eat things like. Nuts and berries, and what they can scavenge as well, because I believe most bears, if not all of them, are omnivores by nature, yep. or at least opportunistic omnivores. They'll yeah. eat plants if they can find them. And actually, yeah, looking at the teeth, that kind of goes along with that evidence. Well, it supports that anyway, that theory, because you have what we can see: the tiny little incisors and the huge kind of cone canines, really similar to that. Of the big cats, but then the molars are much, much flatter. More mm-hmm. for the carnivores, more similar to that. It's not like, like the us. big cats. Yeah, the yeah. cats, yeah, were much pointier than those. Had much pointier molars than that. Kind of goes along, yeah. But this is a much more balanced, and a much that's more balanced it. diet, yeah.
1: And it's as you said, the bears—they will eat whatever is easiest in around. Mm-hmm. So they're very opportunistic. They'll eat mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. So they—they've got real sweet tooth. So mm-hmm. they'll eat the fruit when that's in season. <laughs> They'll eat honey. Those they're witty food yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then they're also you know after those fish and small mammals and things, so they will eat all kinds of things. So when you look at even the incisors, they're not as cone shaped and pointy as mm-hmm. the tigers, mm-hmm. but it has Still the very big canines. Yeah. And then the molars at the back, a bit harder to see, but they're definitely not the mountain shapes. Mm-hmm. They're a no. bit flatter.
0: Yeah, I think I came into contact with quite a few wild bears when I lived in Canada, and every time I came into contact with them was when they were headfirst in someone's garbage bin raiding from the previous night's leftovers, which kind of, again, shows how much these guys value opportunity, and that, hey, there's food in the bin, it's good food. Yeah, <laughs> They'll take it.
1: So we've now had a look at, we've had some plant eaters, we've good had food. some yep. meat eaters, mm-hmm. and we've looked at mm-hmm. an omnivore a kind of an animal that will eat meat and animals now it's time for the difficult stuff
0: Ooh, we're gonna look at the different me. ones Challenge me.
1: right so here we are back in the middle of the gallery in front of a case called toothless mammals which is a bit of a trick because yes. in this ge- uh, case there's lots of different animals we've mm-hmm. got armadillos we've got a few anteaters we've got sloth
0: one of my favorites the tamandua
1: which yeah. looks like a little tree anteater it's really adorable uh, but of these, actually, most of them have teeth. It's just the anteater that doesn't have teeth. Nice and misleading. Yeah. <laughs> now, the anteater, very tricky, because mm-hmm. it's got no teeth. And what would you, if, if I were to told, tell you that someone's got no teeth, what do you think they would eat?
0: Like liquid, a liquid diet.
1: Yeah, mushy things, <laughs> mushy right? things.
0: Right? Slurpy things. Yeah.
1: Now, of course, this is the anteater. Yes. So what the does thing it thing actually name,
0: eat? Yeah, ants. And I think, yeah, I think people are quite familiar, with, well, people might be, but it's got a very, very long, sticky
1: tongue, does it not? It does. It's Mm -hmm. got a super long tongue, and it's not got teeth because it's slurping up like tiny Mm -hmm. morsels, you know, ants, termites, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So they can just swallow those, Mm -hmm. that's fine. On its tongue, it's got lots of little bumpy bits, and it's also got really sticky saliva, Uh, gluey saliva. uh, So it's really good
0: at having all those ants stick to
1: it. (laughs) And then it just slurps it up and then also if you look at it if you can see that it's face is very very long and thin but look where the mouth is it's tiny it's very tiny right down at the end it's got this little tiny mouth so actually it if it even if it wanted to it couldn't open its mouth very big
0: so i just want it because like obviously it's the giant anti like this one is it's quite big but not as big as they get i think they can get pretty big indeed the idea of how many ants and termites this thing must have to eat per day just to survive and make up their calorie count. Like obviously I think ants and termites have a, quite a high kind of protein count in them, like they are quite mm-hmm. energy producing, but still still a lot if that's your only thing it's you're eating.
1: And these ones will crack into mm-hmm. big termite mounds so mm-hmm. there's gonna be millions and millions of termites so, and things that they're after.
0: Although that this animal doesn't have the teeth with which we can investigate for our process of carnivore, herbivore, omnivore, since it eats Termites and ants, it eats an animal product. Can mm-hmm. we say that it's a carnivore? Or is it, would you say insectivore?
1: Ooh, I would call it insectiv- insectivorous. Insectivorous. As that it eats insects, uh-huh. but actually the insectivores is a whole separate group of mammals. Oh my goodness. Right? So I And it's not part of that. They're kind of in their own group. Whoa. The anteaters.
0: I think, yeah, if there's a misconception that
1: all mammals can fall into carnivore, herbivore, omnivore. Yeah, but then you've also got the insectivores, which, and they, I mean, they eat animals, so you can kind of call them carnivores, but there's a bit of a difference between the diets and then also the taxonomic groups that you sort them into. Crazy. So carnivoria Mm -hmm. is a whole group of animals, but actually inside that group, not all of them are 100% carnivores because the bears are are in that group, but but they're omnivores. Uh, meanwhile we've got the anteater here and it's kind of often its own group and it does eat insects but is not part of the, the order of, of mammals the insectivores which taxonomy are is a, shrews and things taxonomy is a topic for another day <laughs> but that's this got this guy is very mm-hmm. you know big cute and when you pick when you get down and really look at his mouth it's got mm-hmm. this it's like a little smile yeah a tiny <laughs> tiny little smile so yeah. if you do come if you ever get a chance to see and anteater in a museum or out in the wild or mm-hmm. in a zoo have a look at that it's got a weird tiny mouth yeah right one last stop another oh. tricky challenge one that's the oh. here we are in front of the mammal history case and in this case we've got one creature and it's got this kind of spikes on its back okay. uh but we're actually going to focus on the animal that's next to it the famous, wacky, duck platypus. It
0: honestly just looks made up, like, it's unless you know, because we know, we know now that it's real, but way, way back in history, you can sort of understand why anatomists and biologists and natural historians didn't believe it was a real mm-hmm. animal. It just looks made up of a bunch of
1: different parts of different animals. It's just crazy. Yep, it's crazy. together. So, and if you look at the front of it, that mouth looks just like a duck's bill.
0: It does. And now I'm trying to work out Hence what it possibly cannabis. could eat.
1: So what does it eat. What does a duck eat?
0: Bread, <laughs> which it shouldn't. <laughs> um, I, don't, I know that ducks, inside their mouths, it, it looks like little, like a little rake or something. Mm-hmm. Lots like, of little like filamenty things. But I have, now that I think about it, I have, I, the platypus has a much flatter beak, I guess. Well, it's not It's a bill rather than a beak.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I am... I'm kind of lost here, Victor.
1: So, ducks, when you look at them, they're kind of dabbling around in the water. Mm -hmm. Some of them will be eating plants, like Mm -hmm. there's duckweed, which... Is invertebrates so named, maybe they will eat invertebrates quite a lot huh. of ducks will actually eat small water inver- mm-hmm. invertebrates and the duck's bill is kind of soft and it's got so that it, so it can feel stuff when it's mm-hmm. feeling around if you imagine like if your mouth was really hard and you were poking around you wouldn't have a very good sense of touch mm-hmm. right but on our platypus again it's got a very kind of soft bill mm-hmm. in the front and it's living in well when it dives underwater it's it actually needs to close its eyes. It can't Mm -hmm. open its eyes in the water, so it can't see. So it's just feeling around. So imagine you've got this creature, and it's feeling around in the mud at Mm -hmm. the bottom of the water. What is there down there?
0: Well, like kind of the mud-dwelling insect. Yeah, exactly. So
1: these guys, they're after all that kind of um, little invertebrates, things Mm -hmm. like little uh, water lice, there's snails, all kinds of little worms, Mm -hmm. leeches, all that stuff down at the bottom. So
0: they don't have teeth? Nope. No, so it's quite like they bill, like a duck then, yeah?
1: Yep, yep. <gasps> so they don't have teeth. So they're just sort of getting that food into their mouth, but uh, then they, they've they got these little cheek pouches mm-hmm. that they kind of keep the food in, and then they, they come up to the surface to eat. So they kind of collect up the food into their mouth, but then they still need to break it up because mm-hmm. so, they're eating, like, snails and things, yeah. creatures with little hard mm-hmm. shells. So they come up to the surface, and then they use their, their mouth to just kind of mash it up.
0: Crazy. So that must limit the size of food that they could eat, the size of prey, I guess you could say. They can't yeah. go too large. No big fish or anything like no, that. No,
1: they wouldn't be going no for small. fish, so they're going after all those invertebrates. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would have, like, little crabs or anything either, because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have the the bite power to mm-hmm. munch it up.
0: Maybe things like tiny shrimp and stuff, really small, small, small ones. It's just, it's just a crazy, crazy animal. The beauty of the natural world, Victor. The platypus is one of our... Unique The The most amazing. Yeah, exactly.
1: Strange little creature. Mm -hmm. So that was a tour of the Mammal Gallery. Very
0: nice as well. So, what was your sort of train of thinking for your like organization and sort of design and
1: the creation of that tour, if you will? Ah, so I wanted to pick a topic that was. Easily accessible and understandable mm-hmm. by a younger audience. I think looking at teeth as
0: well, because that's really, that's instantly, they know what teeth are, they have them, so they can recognize it instantly as well with other yeah. animals. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they're going to have some ideas already of what animals mm-hmm. eat, and now we can look in at a detail mm-hmm. of that. The convenient thing about this tour was the structure of the gallery. So, mm-hmm. right at the entrance, you had that first case that showed you a herbivore, an omnivore, and a carnivore. Mm -hmm. So you can do that overview at the beginning. And then the rest of the tour, basically took in the really big charismatic specimens mm-hmm. in that space so it's the stuff that the kids would want to look at anyways mm-hmm. we're just focusing them yeah. in on like a, a smaller detail
0: exactly it was like the eye-catching specimens that you chose so they'd be interested by that anyway and then sort of the information and the learning side of things by looking at the teeth and sort of thinking but diet i really like that because i felt that's just that's extra and it's making them sort of have Kind of a level of independent thinking as well
1: yeah and mm-hmm. i think it's also good for building rapport because it's also mm-hmm. kind of more familiar creatures like the mm-hmm. tiger is one it's like very mm-hmm. impressive it's one that they're going to know they definitely know what it eats mm-hmm. bears are really cool they're going to be familiar with bears. that <laughs> so that's that builds that rapport mm-hmm. with the yeah, group definitely. so that then when you get down to the the trickier animals where they're going to have to think if you've got mm-hmm. a shyer, a shire visitor or mm-hmm. someone that you're talking to. Or maybe even to. a smaller
0: group that maybe don't know each other. there's the others outside of things. you actually if you're working in school, so less likely. But if you were doing it for a youth club or maybe it was the start of the year and people didn't really know each other, the idea of if there was any group work could be a really good way of building bridges.
1: Yeah, because then the, way the way last ones, when mm-hmm. you're getting them to really speculate on things, mm-hmm. it's it's much riskier, right? Because mm-hmm. people are afraid of, of being wrong mm-hmm. when they make a guess. Yeah. So you kind of need that that level of rapport with them before you ask people to start making these guesses and potentially appearing being wrong or appealing foolish or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah, Wrong is not
0: bad in science. (laughs) No, it's not. Uh,
1: So that's, that's kind of how I thought of it. So you, Mm -hmm. we would look at a detail and then we kind of revisit it in each specimen. And then we get to the tricky ones where, ah, now this isn't, Look mm-hmm. like something familiar. We need to do a bit more thinking about it. Yeah. So that was the.
0: Structure. So what would be your sort of top tips if there was a teacher or a parent or a youth group leader or whatever that was thinking of taking a family group or a young group to a museum or a learning institution um, to do a tour? What's your sort of your key, your winning tips, secret recipe for success in which they could have, organize and have a really wonderful educational, engaging tour?
1: I think that knowing what your group that you're bringing if it's just Mm -hmm. your family or a class Mm -hmm. what your group is into if they're the kind of class that can engage with just a room full of displays Mm -hmm. and you know that that kind of thing is going to hold their attention for enough time then you can Mm -hmm. just bring them there and let them go through it if they're the kind that they're interested to read of their own accord then you know they can just read the displays and then they'll take in whatever the gallery designers intended for them to take in if however you're a teacher and you've got a specific curriculum link that you want to make then definitely the most important thing that i would say is to best thing you can do would be to visit the gallery before you actually go the
0: reconnaissance
1: (laughs) yeah do a reconnaissance trip at the very least look on the internet for photos of the gallery Mm -hmm. because natural history museums can display things in all sorts of manners like Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the older anatomy kind of museums they will have animal skeletons on display Mm -hmm. this museum uh, the natural history museum in london the mammal corridor is full of taxidermy specimens yeah but i know that a lot of galleries that were designed in the 70s or 80s they'll Mm -hmm. actually have like a mix of models taxidermy but also in a diorama showing what their habitat is like
0: Mm. Which is great, actually, maybe if the um, group you're with have difficulty visualizing, like you said, their habitat or their lifestyle, having it in a sort of diorama setting could be really, really good. Or it could, there's the other side of it, it might take away from them having any original thought about maybe what kind of habitat it would live in or sort of things.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. but if you. So I'm thinking if you're a teacher and you want to teach your class about habitats and adaptations, for instance, mm-hmm. it's much easier to... To do that if you've got a display where it's got models and it's in a diorama mm-hmm. because then
0: if you've just got skeletons that's a really really it's tricky really thing hard. to yeah. About, especially
1: yeah. if it's animals that the kids are not going to be familiar with mm. then they, they just don't know or mm-hmm. if it's a habitat that they're not familiar with yeah. they don't know
0: because i definitely know from working with animal skulls that from looking at skulls and skeletons it's really really hard to even for like adults and working with them to visualize what Kind of animal would look like. I've held up fox skulls and nearly wolf skulls, and I still have kids that say, "Oh, that's a rat." Well, I bloody well, hope it's not a rat. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah it's a, like so. Having them, if it was, if you're at the museum or wherever you went, was a corridor of skeletons of animals, really, really cool. But it would be super difficult to try and then ask them from looking at the skeleton what kind of habitat you think that animal might be best suited to, or what colour it might be, or would it is it going to be camouflaged in its environment? Whilst you could use that, yes. For maybe saying, do you think that's going to be a carnivore, omnivore, or herbivore? So I think it's really important to think what questions are you going to be asking. What are you, what's your goal?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if it was just skeletons, if you wanted to do something like classification, because mm-hmm. then maybe you can look at bone structure to mm-hmm. find that out. Yeah. And then in our gallery where it's full of taxidermy, then you've got kind of the exterior of the animal is visible. Mm-hmm. So then you can get them to speculate. Okay, ooh, is this animal going to camouflage? Because we can see what color it is. And you kind of need to have the background knowledge of what their habitat would be like, Mm -hmm. which some will have, some might not.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think you can only rely on museum signposting for so long. So I think it is really crucial to have some background knowledge as well on the things that you're looking at.
1: Yeah, that's right, because the galleries are going to be designed mm-hmm. for a particular purpose. So so for instance, the Mammal Corridor at the Natural History Museum in London is broken down to explain taxonomy, how mammals are classified into different groups. It's not split up to tell you about diet, to tell you about habitats. Mm-hmm. Other museums will have different designs. A lot of them are now starting to introduce really strong conservation messages throughout their gallery mm. design. And in the interpretation panels as well. Yeah. So if you want kids to uh, learn specific messages, you can't always trust that the interpretation in the museum is going to have what you're looking for because different museums mm-hmm. will have their their galleries designed to try and mm-hmm. get across different points.
0: Which is why visiting before, knowing what you're getting yourself in for when you go is so 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 crucial. Yeah. So yeah really important. You could be teaching important. all about plastic pollution at school, and you decide to go see the marine mammal exhibit, but it's all about adaptations to life underwater that's not really gonna you're gonna have to be taking some pretty big leaps there to cover those targets that's why it's, yeah, it's so important to know where you're going exactly what you're going to be getting there and able to cater and tailor your lesson and objectives around that
1: so another consideration if you're bringing kids or classes is to get a good feel of what is the physical space like yeah. uh, particularly if you're bringing a large group so if you're a teacher going to visit a museum don't assume that you're going to be able to sit your whole class down mm-hmm. in a big circle somewhere or <laughs> sit in front of a case, because uh, some museums will be busier than others. Natural mm-hmm. History Museum in London, really, really busy mm-hmm. most of the time. With and a narrow, and
0: narrow mammal corridor as well, that yeah. is a very popular attraction for other visitors as well. So you and will other sharing, school groups. Yeah. So we will be... prepared to share
1: (laughs) yeah other museums will might be much quieter like Mm -hmm. smaller museums or museums that have lower footfall. so in those museums you very well might be able to sit your whole class down Mm -hmm. in a circle do a full lesson there in the gallery Mm -hmm. certainly the museum I used to work at in Toronto we could do that because the footfall was generally low enough during the day that you could actually bring a group sit them down in front of a case Mm -hmm. do a lesson there and then move on
0: so yeah, especially if you're maybe thinking of doing a sort of more artistic sort of term, which you want your children your group to draw or sketch any of the specimens that you might be looking at, obviously that takes a lot of time, a lot of focus, and sitting in front, have an idea yet yeah, about how busy it is. Is that actually going to be feasible in the space and time that you're choosing for your activity?
1: And also be mindful, if you are doing art things, is that not all museums will allow all drawing materials. Um, paint is probably not. Pencils, generally okay. But when you go to markers and crayons and things charcoal. like that. Charcoal. That can actually be a bit of a gray area. Mm-hmm. So that's one where, particularly if you're bringing a large group, if it, you're just on your own, um, sometimes there's more flexibility. But if you're a whole group. Squadron. Yeah, Yeah. I'd check with the institution yeah. before mm-hmm. you
0: go. Which is generally just a good thing to do anyway check with the institution before they generally have some sort of booking office or schools information desk anyway and they generally most institutions like a bit of a heads-up
1: if mm-hmm. a large groups coming yeah and some museums will have stools that are available mm-hmm. as well to use usually they are smaller or more sort of less footfall museums will have those available because otherwise stools can kind of become trip hazards within the gallery. Mm -hmm. Also be aware that a lot of places won't really let you bring your own stool unless Mm -hmm. you have a specific mobility issue. Not BYOS. (laughs) No, again, because it's like a trip hazard. If it's Mm -hmm. really busy, then they they won't allow those things in the gallery usually.
0: And maybe keep in mind as well of when you're doing your sort of reconnaissance, you might go after school or after work, to check out a museum and it's that'll probably be its quietest time midweek or what 6 p.m. or before that depending on opening times when you're bringing your group you might be coming at 12 30 afternoon peak peak times please yeah definitely be mindful of that as well
1: and then I guess the last thing is that if you are bringing kids at or a class or your own children mm-hmm. if you've got a really really specific interest Get in touch with the museum first if they've got a family program Mm -hmm. department or an education department and see what they have on offer because it Mm -hmm. may be that they can actually do something that's more tailored to your needs that isn't necessarily advertised on the website. Mm -hmm. It's always worth checking for things like that.
0: And then check if it's around the holidays, if it's like Easter or whatever. A lot of museums will actually host sort of festivals and that sort of thing as well, which will have specific learning offers then. So that might, you might. Don't have to do it. Someone else can do it, but it's definitely really worthwhile yeah. to do it yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, but museums have their their primary thing is to make mm-hmm. their collections accessible mm-hmm. to the public, so they're they're often pretty willing to do what they can for you, anyways. Mm-hmm. Another thing that a lot of museums will do is actually if you've found something you can bring it into the museum and they'll often they'll be able to identify it for Mm -hmm. you. They might have, if you get in touch with them beforehand, Mm -hmm. you might actually be able to speak with a curator of a collection Mm -hmm. or they'll have identification centers. Mm -hmm. Often folks who work in a hands-on gallery will have resources on hand to be Mm -hmm. able to help you get started on that route as well. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. But if you have any questions or comments, we've actually secretly had an email this whole time Mm. that we've never mentioned, I think. hidden it away until we were brave enough to release it. So it's (laughs) knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com for any questions or comments. Please send us emails. We love emails. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Hmm. Next episode is going to be another tour through the same gallery, Mm -hmm. but through a different lens. Mm
0: -hmm. Different lens indeed, through catering to an adult audience, which should be quite interesting. Hopefully you'll notice maybe some similarities and maybe some differences between the two. But that is all from us. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.